Thank you for tuning into Balanced Black Girl Podcast. My name is Les. I am your host, and I really appreciate you tuning in today. So this summer, I'm re-airing some of our existing podcast episodes that I really think deserve a second listen. And today's episode is a very important one. With the Supreme Court's recent decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, conversations about reproductive justice, sexual education, and bodily autonomy are more important than ever. This ruling has dangerous implications for all, and for Black women and birthing people specifically, the stakes are even higher. With maternal mortality and complication rates being three to five times higher for Black people giving birth, forced birth of potentially dangerous pregnancies can have devastating consequences. A recent study from Duke University found that a nationwide ban could increase pregnancy-related deaths for Black people by 33%, which is so incredibly scary given that the statistics are already so much higher than they should be. The economic impacts here also can't be overstated as Black people are more likely to experience financial obstacles to getting the reproductive care they need. So if someone is in a state that has banned abortion and their only option is to travel out of state, That is so much harder to do when you don't have the means to miss work or to pay for lodging and travel costs and arrange childcare if you already have children, which, by the way, many people seeking abortion already do have children. The financial impacts of having a child can also be devastating if you're not ready for it, as those who are denied abortion are more likely to live in and remain in poverty for years after giving birth. So this ruling impacts everyone and is something that we have to continue talking about. These conversations can't die down. We can't let the media move on to the next thing. It is absolutely dire. So for today's episode, we're returning to our conversation about reproductive justice, sexual education, and bodily autonomy with Dr. Sarah Flowers, the Director of Education for Planned Parenthood. An advocate for evidence-informed practice and emotional intelligence in sex education, Sarah's research focuses on fidelity and adaptation of sex education curricula, dismantling sexual and reproductive health disparities, serving youth of color, and strengthening reproductive health access. This conversation is more timely than ever. In the show notes, I've also linked to resources of funds to support and organizations to engage with to support reproductive justice for anyone who needs it. So thank you again for listening, and let's get into our conversation with Dr. Sarah Flowers. Dr. Sarah Flowers, welcome to the show. I'm so happy to have you here. Thank you. So happy to be here. Definitely. So we have a lot to dive into today. We're going to be talking a lot about COVID and how that impacts our sexual health and relationships, especially with a lot of our cities opening back up and what that looks like. But before we dive into that, I would love for our audience to get to know you a bit better. So you have been the Vice President of Education at Planned Parenthood since 2018. Can you take us back a bit and tell us how you got to that point and what ignited your interest in public health? Absolutely. So I grew up in the 80s and 90s. And so as a kid, you know, there are some things I didn't know it at the time, but there are many experiences that I had growing up that shaped my passion for public health and sex education. I remember seeing the news where Ryan White and his family just wanted him to be able to attend school with other kids, Um, but fear and stigma of HIV, you know, were real barriers to that. 
I was in fifth grade when Magic Johnson announced his HIV positive status and retired from the Lakers. And I clearly remember the way the public reacted. And I remember Black women in music like TLC and Salt and Pepper talking about sex and sexuality and taking a public stand, right, about their sexuality, our sexuality, talking about safer sex, wearing condoms, and no one else was having those conversations. I also remember Rent. I came of age when Rent came you know, to New York, I grew up in a suburb of New York City. Um, and I remember the music and the messages and, you know, the messages about sex and relationship and love and loss. And those, I think, resonated for me. I don't think, again, I don't, I was a kid growing up, I was a teenager, I didn't realize that. But I went to Spring Valley Senior High School in Spring Valley, New York. And when I was a sophomore, a senior who was graduating had created what was called then AIDS Awareness Day in memory of his uncle who had died of age-related complications. And it was a day where the whole high school spent a whole day learning about HIV prevention. And because he was graduating, he wanted to pass it on to a younger student so that the tradition would continue. And so I learned how to organize a full school day. I learned how to talk about sex and sexuality. I learned how to plan programs and think about which speaker would be good for which classroom of students and how to, the value of interactive learning and how to talk to administrators and teachers who were concerned, frankly, about talking about safer sex and sex and sexuality and HIV with young people. Planned Parenthood came and I, actually learned to talk to media, all of these lessons. Uh, then I did that all through high school and that ignited a passion in me. And I particularly, I have one memory from the first year that I did it where students who were older than me, so I'm a sophomore, I looked up to the seniors, right? And two students who I looked up to, who I think were in a relationship at the time, walked out of a workshop that I had organized and they looked at each other and they said, this is so important. We should, why are we not talking about this more? And these conversations, you know, stayed with me. I remember that. I, I went to college and I studied psychology and no offense to anyone else who studied psychology, but I had a bachelor's and was essentially equipped to do very little. Um, <laughs> I could, you know, no one would hire me to file. And I had a professor who asked me what I was interested in. And again, this was the early 2000s. And I said, teen pregnancy prevention, which also at the time seemed like really preventable. And, and I was young. I didn't know what social determinants of health were. I didn't understand the way, the complex ways that our racist history and society and systems had compounded to impact Black people's health. I just knew that my community was experiencing that, you know, what we now know as disparities and disproportionate negative health outcomes. And so she sort of pointed out her window and said, there's a school of public health, which I'd never heard of. And I sort of trotted over and applied for graduate school and went straight to graduate school and studied all about community health and came out of there and got my first job running a sex ed program for the Boys and Girls Clubs of Greater Washington. And it was amazing. I got to teach sex ed to fifth through ninth graders. And I learned so much. And so many of those young people who are now adults and probably parenting today stay with me. I think about them in this work. And eventually I did a few other roles. I don't have to read you my resume, but um, <laughs> it's thrilling to have been, you know, most recently before I came to Planned Parenthood, I was running programs here in New York for a small nonprofit that focused on called Love Heals, that focused on 
sex ed and HIV prevention for mostly youth of color all around New York City. And the opportunity for this role at PPFA became available. And frankly, the idea of being able to influence sex education on a national scale for young people and adults across the country is a dream come true. The idea that I get to, I mean, I make a joke to my team, even budgeting is fun in this job because (laughs) I do sex ed all day and that's all I've done my entire life. And it is, I am never sick of it. I love this work. I believe in this work. And I see people, you know, as adults, like at college reunions, they're like, you're still doing that? (laughs) I've had, you know, other people say they've had three careers since we met, but this is my real true passion. And I think it's because sex and sexuality is this integral element of humanity. It's a part of all of us. It shows up differently in all of us, but it's an integral part of all of us. Um, And this is a real incredible opportunity to be at PPFA and to be able to influence the way that this work is happening across the country. Oh my goodness. Well, there's so many elements of your story that I loved and and want to dive back into. First, I really appreciate the context you provided of the time period, how you were growing up in the 80s and the 90s. And those two decades, I mean, I'm certainly not a historian, but those two decades were I think really big turning points in our society when it came to understanding sexual health and sex ed and what that looks like with HIV and AIDS and that education, especially probably in the 80s where so little was known about it. Just the context of how much changed in that time is so, so important. I think especially for those of us who were born during that time and kind of don't know anything different, having to kind of shift how people learn about those topics during that time is just really, really interesting. You know, what resonates, I I agree with you. And what resonates with me and comes up for me as I think about your comment and digest your comment is that to me is also one of the most exciting things about this field is sex education isn't stagnant. Humanity isn't stagnant. We're constantly evolving. And so it's funny when I tell that story, we called it AIDS Awareness Day. We called it teen pregnancy prevention. We do not call the field those things today, right? And in the same way that we taught sex ed in the 90s, the sex ed I was exposed to is not the sex ed that you're, hopefully is not the sex ed young people are getting today. The way we talk about sexual orientation, gender identity, consent, communication, bodily autonomy, those were not elements of sex education that I experienced. And they certainly have evolved. And I think the beauty of this field is that we are constantly changing and evolving. When I started my doctoral program, I did my doctorate in public health at City University of New York. Um, One of the first professors in our first class said, this is a living, changing field. If the research you do today is still relevant in 10 years, we're not doing our job. Wow. We have to be moving. Yeah. Even five years ago, 10 years ago, sex education was different. Absolutely. Definitely over the past decade, I think that there's been so much positive movement in terms of the language that we all use. And I think for me, I was growing up kind of in the the late 90s, early 2000s when I was kind of started receiving sex ed in school. And even still, there were a lot of 
things that felt taboo. It still felt very fear mongering and not empowering of understanding how complex sexuality is, understanding our bodies and feeling empowered to make decisions. It was very much like everybody get in the auditorium. Here are photos of sexually transmitted infections to scare you all. And there you go, you know, and knowing that that has hopefully changed, as you said, especially in the past few years, I think is, is very good to see. Yeah, I hope we're, we're really pushing past fear-based learning, I would hope. I'm really thinking about, you know, to your point about all of the elements of our sexuality, who we are, pleasure, consent, all of these pieces. And, and, the, and that was missing, frankly. We didn't talk about orgasm in sex ed, in, at least in the, the conversations I was a part of as a young person, um, and to really recognize that why, why else are people sexually active? It feels good, right? And to really be honest and to, to let people see the joy and the power um, that their bodies offer them is really, I think, a wonderful, a wonderful opportunity. And especially, frankly, for Black folk in this moment, we have to find our joy. 100%. Bringing things to where we currently are, you know, we all know 2020 has been quite the year already. It's not, it's not over yet, but we've, we've experienced a lot so far this year, obviously with one of those really major challenges being the global impact of COVID-19 and how that has really impacted all of us. So currently we here in the States are starting to see some restrictions lift. A lot of cities are opening back up. Um, people are no longer confined to their homes the way they once were, which means people are going to likely be connecting more, especially if for the past, you know, three, four months, folks have felt really like they've really been missing that. And connecting in person is going to kind of depend on different comfort levels. But starting off there, I would love to hear from your perspective how we can initiate honest conversations either with partners, um, prospective partners to ensure that we're having healthy sexual relationships as we continue to navigate the unknowns of this pandemic? I think it's an, I think it's incredibly complicated. I think one of the most important sort of foundations and in, in when we teach sex education is communication. And that, in my lens, is a multifaceted approach. It requires me to understand and, and explore my my own needs and be able to communicate them to a potential partner. And so I think during COVID-19 pandemic, there's going to need to be real clear conversations around consent. And that's going to need to be included in not just the consent for any sexual act or behavior, but also consent because we need to be transparent around how folks have been social distancing, was, you know, maybe I saw this person and not that person, especially as we're merging households, if, if your partner doesn't live with you. The other thing I think that we're going to want to navigate is some folks might have been social distancing alone for this long duration of time. And there's going to be moments where if that were the case, skin hunger is real, right? And so maybe you just need to feel touch or a hug. And how are you navigating that need and getting that need and getting that care for yourself? For folks who are partnered and maybe they are living in the same home, I think it's really important to recognize that like folks and their libidos respond differently to stress. Some folks 
maybe this opportunity of being home all the time seems like great. We can really have a lot more sex and, and that feels like a stress reliever for some. For others, that may not be a solution at all. Libidos could totally drop. All of that is completely normal. And the challenge is how do we communicate that? Because you maybe one partner is a higher sex drive, another partner is a lower sex drive. How am I feeling about that? Did I tell, you know, did I communicate with you? I'm not really feeling it, but I, but these are other things we could do. And what my, did I communicate what my needs are? I think the other piece is there's opportunities to think about, you know, there's frustration here. And so so I think there's, there's going to be different ways that we're connecting with partners. And that may look differently since we're not having the typical or what we were accustomed to pre-COVID. It's gonna be navigating new pathways, new lines of communication. Is it sexting? Is it photos? How are you feeling about yourself? I think there's a lot of questions to explore. And so these are conversations that I also think are ongoing. They're not gonna happen one off, but I feel like it's really the communication piece is gonna be important. Definitely. And I appreciate everything that you brought up just as different different parts of the conversation that we can all take and have as are applicable to our lives. Because I think pre-COVID, there were just less things to think about. There was a lot more access to people and to situations and to things that we don't necessarily have now. And even knowing where to start with those conversations could be really tricky for a lot of folks. And I think that you gave us a lot of really great examples of things that we want to consider as we navigate those situations, which I really appreciate. I loved what you said about libido and stress, because I think for a lot of folks, that is a really big factor. I think a lot of um, women in particular, it can be a really big factor. And especially what we're experiencing now, not only with the global pandemic, but also with what we're seeing with Black Lives Matter and a lot of other really heightened stressful situations, that's going to impact a a lot of how we communicate and connect with one another as well. I think that's absolutely true. And I think that one of the things that's, that's really important to emphasize is that there's, there's no one thing that's normal right? That your experience, my experience, their experience, that's our experience. It is. It's a fact, right? It's not that mine has to be like yours or like theirs or anything. And I think that reminding folk, that's how you react to a thing. And it's okay to sort of sit with it. And how do we, I think, I mean, I'm married and social distancing at home with a seven-year-old and navigating all these years of marriage and we haven't spent this much time together and there's been some real communication right and when we weren't it was tense and that's real and and others maybe just experiencing maybe they're not social distancing with with folks in the home and and they're feeling either a level of tension or isolation and that's real so i think there there's different ways you know to be intimate and stay safe alone or with a partner and I think there's an opportunity for us to be creative and to leverage the different ways that we have connections with folks so that we can stay healthy because human beings need connection. And that may be through a digital platform. It may be in person. It may be that you have to find some sort of hybrid, but I think that that's validating that whatever your connection is and trying to find that in yourself and be able to communicate that out is going to help us. And the added stress of being black in this moment is super real. So real. And I, yeah, I think I can just like let that hang. That's super real. <laughs> like we all, yeah, those of us who who are black, like we're feeling it. We know we all kind of have that collective 
heightened sense of awareness of a lot of folks waking up to our blackness and what that fully means, even though it's something that is not new to many of us, that that new sense of awareness of a lot of our peers is has been very interesting. I loved what you said about getting creative. I think honestly, through this whole pandemic with folks having to stay at home, I mean, I think we've seen most people probably don't spend as much time on the internet as I do, and I need to cut back a little bit. But the level of creativity in all forms of people being at home with less to do has just been spectacular. And I would love to talk a little bit more about what that could look like in terms of you know how we connect with each other, be it in an intimate setting, sexually, socially, um, and what that could look like just in terms of, of ways that we can get creative as we connect. Yeah, I think I have, you know, there's a few ideas that that come up. I think that, you know, again, everyone's circumstance is going to be different. So those those who are not physically in the same home as their partner, there may be various ways that you connect. You know, maybe, you know, I told you I grew up in the 80s and 90s. We made mixtapes. Is that the <laughs> thing? Is it a Spotify playlist now? Um, you know, those are those are possibly ways or sending notes to one another. And it may be as simple as texting, sexting. These are things that are people people are really doing. You know, if if you're a consenting adult, that's a wonderful way to connect. I mean, folks have done virtual dates, virtual, you know, Netflix parties. There's so many different ways I think folks have been creative to connect, to share out media content that they've seen. I mean, how much laughter I've had from folks sharing TikTok postings with me has been, you know, joyful. And then I think the other piece that's really important is back to the communication, which I feel like I'm being, you know, I keep saying the same thing over, but... I think a lot about the book, The Five Love Languages, and how it's up to us to sort of say, I feel loved when, right? Yeah. Like, what, whatever the thing is, fill in the, fill in the blank, whatever it is for you, whether it's physical touch or words of affirmation, but to communicate that to our person and to let them have an opportunity to offer those things to you so that you can sort of, as my husband say, fill up your gas tank. Like that's an opportunity, right? To really find ways to meet needs. And I think the important piece to me is we don't want to make people guess if we, to the extent that we don't have to. Like I'm more likely to get my, the thing that I want if I say, I'd really love spaghetti for dinner, you know? <laughs> So that'll, that'll, then maybe I'm more likely to get spaghetti as opposed to whatever else they were thinking of. So I think that that's, uh, we need to be a little bit real with ourselves in that moment of what we need. That also takes some brave, as I said earlier, braveness and vulnerability to be able to dig in and see what it is we need and then communicate that out to a person. So hopefully there's trust there for that. Mm, I could not agree more. And I think that that's amazing advice because it's really hard to get your needs met if you don't know what they are. And I think there can also be a lot of fear. And I know this is something that I've experienced as a single person navigating um, this pandemic and isolation of, okay, but what if I voice what my needs are and they don't get met? And that fear of kind of the additional rejection. But I think that that's just, it's its part of the the human experience. And the one way to guarantee that your needs don't get met is to not address them and to not communicate them. I agree. And I, and I, I'm, I've recently taken to saying to my daughter when I'm trying to talk to her and, and this is just because she's seven, right? But take a pause, but also be brave to say that thing. 
right? So hopefully we're saying these things to people who care about us and who want to look out for us and support us. And you listen, we have to trust our gut. If you don't feel safe to do a thing, say a thing, trust that. I, I stand in that, right? But in spaces where there's, where there's love and support and trust, we do sometimes have to be brave to ask for that thing. And that is scary. And hopefully the people around us will show up for us. And in this moment, and it's a wild moment, <laughs> this 2020. Um, but in this moment, I have seen folks are trying to show up with the humanity. A lot of a lot of good people, it seems to me, are, are trying to show up with their humanity. And hopefully the people that surround us are, are doing that for us. Absolutely. Could not agree more. And it's a, it's a good time to ensure that, you know, the folks that you have surrounding you are showing up for you. And if not, like, it's also okay to make adjustments as needed, which is probably the nicest Absolutely way I can think to say true. that. That's an also, that's an also real way to say what you need though. Yep. And if that may not be, a, I mean, that's, we're, we're reading that time and again about people's experiences of this time together. Folks are getting to know each other real well. Yep. And that may be a choice where like, this isn't the thing I need and I'm going to articulate that. And that's also a, a, a way to care for yourself. Exactly. So I would love to talk a little bit more about consent. I know it's something that we uh, touched on. And also I love that we keep coming back to communication. And I don't think that you're being too repetitive at all because I think that over communication is like key. <laughs> so we can just keep going with that. Um, but I would love to talk a bit more about consent and just the different conversations that we can have around consent. And I read as I was preparing for this interview with you, a really great article that you published recently where you had shared a story about how your daughter, who you've mentioned, taught you a very valuable lesson about consent. And I'll make sure that I link that in the show notes so that folks can, can read it because it's a really great read. But I would love to talk a little bit more about consent with you and about uh, just some of the different forms and fashions that consent conversations can come up. Because I think when a lot of folks maybe think of consent, they think of only in a sexual context in the moment. And I think that <laughs> consent is so much bigger than that. And I also think that uh, conversations around consent, specifically with young people, can also take shape in so many different ways. Absolutely. I definitely agree with you. And I think it's an important conversation. And it's one that I have often, not just in work, but in life, because I have other friends who are raising young children. And, you know, to zoom out just for a moment in sex education, one of the things that I find is that there, there's an opportunity to help the, the general public understand that sex education really is this lifelong conversation. And consent is a part of that from a very young age. In many Black families, maybe not all, but in many Black families, there's this idea that you had to, that you, were, you were raised to speak to folk when you come in a room, right? You greet folk verbally. And there's some communities where that's a hug or a physical embrace. And I wanted my child to understand that she should be polite, she should greet folk, right? But that she didn't have to be touched if she didn't want to be touched. And I, time and again, when she was very a young toddler, 
I saw times where she clearly didn't want to be embraced by someone, a loved one. You know, there's the, there's always a joke about, oh, auntie so-and-so comes and sees you and I've known you since you were in your, you know, a twinkle in your mother's eye or whatever the <laughs> saying is, right? And kids are looking at you like, who is this old lady? You know what I mean? Kids are like, what? They don't care. <laughs> and it was really important for me to, for, for her to understand that she could be polite and also take a step back and wave and say hello with her voice. She did not have to be embraced if she didn't want to be embraced. And how we assert that with politeness and with kindness to someone that your parents invited into the home or whomever, we can do both of those things. We can have bodily autonomy and have my wishes for my body be respected, even as a young person, while also being polite and adhering to you know, whatever the practice, cultural practice of your family is. So I see that a lot. And I think that helping adults to think about how are we respecting young people's bodies and how are we helping them to feel assured that we hear them and that if they say they don't like that thing, I don't know, you know, the story that you mentioned, and we don't have to get into it, but the story that you mentioned that, that we wrote about was that um, my daughter didn't want me to tell a story about her, which I will not tell. And she, she was very clear that it was not okay. And so I, I had to really check myself and know that I would not tell the story because there was a moment where I was like, she's seven. She's not really on the internet. She won't see it before she's 12. If she Googles herself, maybe I could just like slide under the radar for five years. And that's not the way I want to show up for her. I want her to know that if she tells me that that's not cool, that I, you know, I respect that. And I want to say that and also acknowledge that that's not saying I don't make the kid eat vegetables, right? Like there's this like push and pull line in parenting where I'm trying to help this kid to recognize that when she tells a person no about her body, that she expects, she is raised to expect that that person respects that. And those consent conversations aren't just, do you want to have sex now? It's, you know, maybe as simple as I don't want to be tickled, right? Or, or don't snatch my toy. Like there's a lot of different ways to help people not only assert what I do want, but also hear and know. That's a really important part of consent is there is a two-way dialogue here of if I want a thing from you and you don't want to give it, I need to respect that boundary that you're you know, laying out. And that's also a really important part of the consent conversation. And that's really an important part, I think, of conversations with young people and, and respecting that no. That doesn't just happen at 17. That we're, we're raised with that. And how we respond to people, how we are respectful of people's boundaries, I think, starts very young as well. Absolutely. And, you know, what I love about what you shared there is you're right. I mean, it doesn't magically happen where you your whole life have either maybe not had boundaries respected or didn't even know that boundaries were a thing that you could have. And then all of a sudden as an adult, you're like perfect at it. And there you go. I get a lot of messages and emails and things from listeners because we talk about boundaries a lot. We talk about using your voice and, and what that looks like from women who are, you know, in their 20s, 30s, so on, who are like, I'm just now learning these things. I'm just now feeling empowered to do those things, which I know I've felt that way as well. And it's it's because we don't necessarily have that conditioning when we're younger. And I think so many of us, you know, in in my generation, like as millennials are really 
waking up to a lot of those things and to a lot of those practices that I'm really hopeful that the next generation after us that we're able to help shape and influence a bit will have an, an easier time using their voices earlier on because they are having that autonomy at a younger age. It's funny. In my work, there's a lot of conversation around the value of sex education. And as a field, we're really trying to impress upon like, you know, a whole plethora of, of folks, stakeholders, but the value of sex education from kindergarten to 12th grade, that this isn't something that you just do in eighth grade for half a semester and show a video or two. This is a lifelong skill set that really is, it's complex and it it's a actual skill set that requires practice and thinking and you know, we call it negotiating for safer sex, but really it's negotiating for how we are showing up in community. And that also, you know, that speaks to not just sexual acts or and bodily autonomy, but respecting people's diversity, whether that be differences in race and ethnicity, religious beliefs, sexual orientation, gender identity, sex education through the lifespan helps people to really interact with one another in a way that's respectful and positive. And I believe that it really has a positive sort of contribution to the way we show up as a society. Wholeheartedly. I love that. And I couldn't agree more. And I think it really comes down to, and I know we've talked about communication quite a bit, but really conditioning folks to be able to communicate and, and from a young age about, you know, how we do talk to each other and respect each other and what that looks like. I think the the younger we can do that, the better off everyone is. Agreed. And it, and it's funny, you know, I'll say one one other piece which is sex education looks it it changes developmentally in the same way that we don't teach calculus in first grade, right? So what it looks like in kindergarten, first, second, third grade is developmentally appropriate for that age group, right? It's, and so it's really important to understand that it scaffolds and it's a real body of expertise and professionalism. And, you know, should folks be useful, I, sh I could certainly share with you, we have de videos developed on consent and relationships for parents and for young people, and those could be useful tools um, for your listeners. So we can share those with you. Yes, thank you. And as we think about, um, for lack of a better word, kind of it graduating in our in our sexual education conversations, right? We've talked a bit about, uh, especially with younger children, kind of age-appropriate ways to teach them how to communicate bodily autonomy. When it comes to folks who are currently communicating with teenagers and who are having those conversations with teenagers, also in the state of dealing with a, a global pandemic, how do those conversations shift? Teenagers are really dealing with a lot of loss right now. And I think the first, I imagine that if you're parenting a teenager, you see it in real time, right? Because you have this person at home who had plans their whole life up till now with these real physical interpersonal milestones, whether it be prom, graduation, socializing with friends, driving and being able to go places independently with friends and not being trapped in the house. And I think that that grief is real. And I just, 
I imagine that parents of teenagers are are recognizing the the gravity of it, but I just sort of want to reiterate that that grief is real. And that said, they're still teenagers. So like the the need for sex education, the hormonal changes, the questions that they may have, the feelings that they may be experiencing, all of that's not going to disappear just because we're in pandemic and we are all home. And so I think there's so many opportunities to share resources. Young people are very much digital natives. They're online and there, you know, there are many resources that can be available to young people. We have a sex ed chat bot called Rue that you can chat from your, t- your phone and anonymously ask questions and get the bots to respond to you. We have a chat text line. There's many other, you know, online resources, videos. And also I think that being home gives people an opportunity to engage with their young people in a way that the busy lives we had pre-COVID, we might have not done as deeply or as frequently. At least that's my experience as a parent, that there's a lot of time that I'm spending doing sort of really basic things that I might have missed or skipped or not been home for because I was out in the world. So I think that there's opportunities for us to have conversations. As Black mothers, my friends and I talk about how we ensure that our children's sex education reflects our upbringing, our values and faith. And I know other communities have the same conversations and concerns. And I think we also talk about what we wish we'd learned and what can we do now that we are parenting to provide our kids with opportunities for conversation, for learning, for discussion, for exploration that maybe we didn't have, or maybe we did. That'd be great. If you had something you loved and you want to model it, amazing. And then some of us have to like try a new thing. And that's also fine. I also think about queer young people in particular, and if their homes are safe for them to be who they are. And I hope that kids who are quarantined with their families as they're exploring their sexual orientation or their gender identity can do so in a safe space. And if they don't, maybe if they have a resource or online, certainly Planned Parenthood offers, as I mentioned, Rue and Chat Text Line to connect. And those resources are available and will respect your ability to sort of just do it quietly on your phone, as opposed to a conversation and recognizing that there are going to be some people in some spaces where having a verbal conversation that could be overheard at home isn't a safe space for everyone. And so what are other ways that folks can connect and get the support or the care that they need? These are, these are media that are available and resources that are available to folks so that they can connect with someone and get access to support. All just great points and resources. And I really appreciate what you said about the grief that a lot of young folks feel currently. I think that that's just the perfect way to put it with all of these, these milestones and things that they were really looking forward to and how challenging it must be to be at an age where you're old enough to understand, but still not fully able to not not able to not do anything about it, but where you're not like an adult who is living on their own and has full autonomy of where you are and the spaces you're in and and how challenging that must be. And I think definitely having uh, empathy with the young folks in our lives is, is really important with that in mind. Agreed. This is a challenging time for all of us, young folks too. Truly. And I mean, it's, it's, 
you know, no one's been through it. So it's like nobody fully has the answer for how to properly cope because nobody is has experienced these many things happening at this magnitude all at once. And then you also have technology where we're all very connected in one way or another and inundated with information. And it is... <laughs> The perfect storm. It, it it very much is, and I and I would also say that it's not. It, I would say teens in particular are, are mourning those those milestones, but young children are too. Kids need other kids, yeah. and so I think, and so do we. Adults do too. Humanity needs people. So I think it's we. I'm sure we all saw like the memes. Like I didn't realize that I was. I'm an introvert. I you know at the beginning of this, people were like, "This is just where I wanted to be," and now we're like okay, enough's enough, right? So I think like recognizing that and, and one, giving each other grace, giving ourselves grace and also seeing what we can do to be, to support folks and give them the little, little bit of, of, of connection and, and doing that in creative ways. Absolutely. And something that I've been thinking, especially over the past month, as we've seen everything that's happening with Black Lives Matter and the protests and really, I mean, the revolution that we're in the midst of, and seeing people out and and protesting was like so commendable and understandable in so many ways. And I think when the protests first started, I also wonder how much of that was people's longing for connection and having not had it in several months. And there's all of a sudden this passion of like, let's go out and do something. And it's our first chance to be around other people in months that also really contributed to a lot of what we're seeing. How poignant. I hadn't thought of that before. I love that framing. And, and what, uh, to your, you know, to your point, this, this notion of coming together in service of an incredibly, I mean, the issue is literally life and death. Right. And yeah that that connection and that the, the humanity and connection to the humanity is, is, is partially driving that is really interesting. I hadn't considered that before. Just, you know, things, things that I think about when I'm at home, <laughs> at home still sheltering in place. <laughs> Gives me time to think about more things. <laughs> I appreciate it. I'm going to noodle it. <laughs> and I'm so, I don't know if it's appropriate to say grateful. I I've only, seen protests, right, to be perfectly honest, um, from my street and they've walked by. I haven't myself been in a protest. I've done other things, but I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful for folks who are out there with their voices. And um, I'm so grateful to be able to, to show my kid that people are standing up for what's right. Yeah. So, um, one of the other areas that I would love to kind of talk about when it comes to relating sexual education with our current state in the pandemic is around reproductive health care. Earlier this year, we published an episode about Black maternal health in the U.S. back in April when it was Black Maternal Health Week um, and talked about the disparities that Black women face in that area. And I would love to hear from your perspective or from the work that you've seen if those same disparities exist when it comes to sexual and reproductive health pre-pregnancy and how we as Black women can advocate for ourselves if we are in that situation. Definitely. You know, the history of structural racism and oppression and discrimination in this country has left 
black communities with less economic opportunity and therefore less access to health care, health insurance. And frankly, racism also affects the health care that we receive. So we know that there's this sort of compounding forces of institutional, structural, environmental racism, and all of these other discriminatory policies, redlining, and unconscious bias around how we experience pain and how we under our, how our understanding of our bodies are considered when we are seeking medical care that really impacts the healthcare that we receive. And so, you know, there's a piece of your question around how we can advocate for ourselves. And I struggle with that because frankly, I don't know that the onus is on us. The onus is on the system, the onus is on the provider, and how many times can a black woman say, I don't feel right until someone hears and responds? I think there's so many stories that are coming to my mind, they're all spinning through my head, but I think related to your specific piece, I think of Serena Williams. Mm -hmm. And she knew her health history. I mean, she is a world-renowned athlete. She knows her body. She is affluent. She has money and resources and connections. And still, her needs were not responded to in a way that was appropriate or timely. And as a result, threatened her life. And it's not a question of, did I advocate for myself hard enough? Yes, that's important. We just talked a few minutes ago about bodily autonomy and standing up for what we need. I'm not at all saying we should sort of sit there meekly. That's not what I'm saying. But I want to be really clear that the responsibility lies with the system and the provider, I think. And and I want to say there are many wonderful providers, but many of us have a lot of work to do. And how do we reconcile the complexity of this system? And how do we, as individuals who care, do the work? We all are raised and functioning in this society that operates, and it is, white supremacy is everywhere. It's in the water, it's in the air, white supremacy culture. And so how are we navigating that? And how are we doing what we can to dismantle that in the systems in which we have a part and a voice and leadership? And I think that these are complex issues. I think that it's really important, you know, to sort of go to the other part of your question around needing sexual and reproductive health care. People don't stop having sex. People don't stop needing birth control. People don't stop needing abortions in the moment of COVID-19 and a pandemic. These needs continue. Planned Parenthood is still here meeting those needs and providing that care. And it's really important for, you know, I'll say the word government a little bit loosely to recognize that those needs continue regardless of this moment and to also say that Planned Parenthood remains committed to working with other public health providers and hospitals and you know following the lead of reproductive justice and rights organizations to serve their patients in the community especially in these uncertain and unsettling times and I think the the patient's needs come first and we have a responsibility to do the work ourselves so that we can be providing the care the patients need and listening to what they need. We know that Black women need unrestricted access to 
reproductive health care to sexual health care to abortion care this is this is not going to change and this this need that we all have is not new it remains essential it remains time sensitive and we need to providers who provide health care that is compassionate non-judgmental and culturally congruent amen i mean i completely agree from beginning to end that in so many ways i mean the the responsibility should not be on us to ensure that we are being treated fairly when it comes to the care that we receive that we should receive fair treatment that is in our best interests at all times and the systemic changes that that need to occur for that i just completely i completely agree and i'm very glad that you said that and said it so beautifully <laughs> thank you <laughs> um Amazing. Well, I would love to just kind of circle back. You know, we started the conversation getting to know you in terms of just your professional background and what inspired you to step into this work. And before we wrap up, I would love to just talk about some of the ways that you um, practice wellness in your own life and what some of your own either self-care practices or some of the ways that you pour into yourself are. So, what are some of your just kind of non-negotiable pour into yourself? Wellness Absolutely. Practices? I'll tell you your episode on how you responded to inquiries really resonated with me. Um, <laughs> and actually I meant that you had, you had said in the episode, you can take this phrase and use it in your own emails and text responses. And I was like, I'm going to write this down when I get home. <laughs> um, it, because, because a one, one, self-care practice for me to be perfectly frank is many friends whom I love, but also who I don't see and speak to maybe annually have reached out and I didn't have the energy to respond. And it's not that I don't love you and see the intent that your intent is genuine and good. I just chose not to, in that moment, do that emotional labor of responding. And that was a, that was a self-care practice for me. You know, other things that I'm doing, I'm really trying to go for walks every day and be outside and stretch my legs. And I'm really enjoying it. And a cherry or whipped cream or whatever your favorite ice cream topping is, <laughs> hot fudge. You know, on top of that for me is I've been able to have three-way phone calls with my two best friends from college and just like talk. We're all parenting these little kids and we're all home with them and trying to figure out how to work and keep the house clean and cook three meals a day for all these people. And it's really just lovely to connect with my friends on the phone. Like it's 1997. It's really nice. And also I've really had time with my daughter and it's wild. And sometimes I, if I step on another Lego, I'm going to like come unfurled into pieces, but I got to watch her ride a bike, learn to ride a two wheeler and see her like she's blossoming. And we unload the dishwasher together every day, which was an uphill battle, but it's happening. And we're having conversations and I'm learning about who she is as a person. And I think if we'd been in school at work every day, we wouldn't have these little moments. And so I'm trying to find joy in these small things. Mm, That's beautiful though. I think Gosh, all of those things, preserving your energy, huge, and finding joy in where we currently are, still spending a lot more time at home and and that special time that you're getting with your daughter and, and talking to your friends. I agree. I'm like, I 
have probably had more phone conversations with my girlfriends the past three months than I had the past five years. And those are beautiful acts of self-care. Absolutely. Um, It's really, that is what is keeping me going. Yeah. I love it. So before we wrap up, it's time for my favorite question. (laughs) Uh, And that is, what does being a balanced Black girl mean to you? Being a balanced Black girl to me is standing in your truth and using your voice, whatever that looks like for you, because it may not be something loud and, and it may not be something that shouts into the rafters. It may be a whisper, it, but standing in your truth and being able to articulate your whatever that is out into the world. You know, for, for, for this moment, I, I think I might have said earlier, but if I didn't, I'll say it now. I think that in this moment, it is crucial for us to center our pleasure and our wellness and our joy, even if they're small moments. There are so many factors against us that we can try to prioritize that. Our joy is an act of resistance. It's necessary so that we can have the energy we need to show up for our community as a whole. And so I, that, like I said earlier, that may look different for each of us, but I hope that we can find moments where we're preserving our pleasure, moments where we're preserving our wellness. That may look like a nap for some, for one person and a walk for another and an orgasm for another, but whatever that is for you, I hope that that's a way that you're sort of shouting your message and your goodness into the universe. Mm, oh, I just have chills. I love that so much. I mean, I think conversations and, and creating space where it's just okay for Black women to feel joy and to celebrate our joy is, is truly one of my favorite things in the world. That's why I created this space. And so I just extra love that answer and think it's really beautiful. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. So Dr. Flowers, how can our audience stay in touch with you? How can we follow your work? How can we support what you're doing? I mean, certainly on the Planned Parenthood website, I I have to be really honest with you. I'm not so big on Twitter or Instagram. Those are sort of private spaces for me. (laughs) (laughs) But I am on LinkedIn and you can Google me there. I have, you know, a few articles out in the world and I am thrilled to be at Planned Parenthood and be a part of the conversations and the work that is happening. And I think that's probably it because my social media presence, it if it, if it expands, <laughs> I'll keep you posted. But in the moment, <laughs> they're, pri- they're private accounts. I mean, that's an act of self-care as well that, you know, I might, they are, it, I might it, model it, it after you pretty is. soon. <laughs> <laughs> it truly is in this moment. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for being here. I enjoyed this conversation, learned so much, and really appreciate having you here. I really appreciated being able to speak with you. Thank you so much for inviting me. Thank you for tuning into Balanced Black Girl. If you enjoyed this episode and feel called doing so, we would really appreciate a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Don't forget to check out the show notes and more offerings at balanceblackgirl.com.